Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the news with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you, hopefully, with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you once again. Hey, Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you this week. Hey, guys. Good morning, guys. It's our last show of August, guys. I have to bring (laughs) it up, but September 2nd, we'll be speaking again. Are you in kind of summer, final summer mode, Stuart? Are you going to make something of this last week of August? No, I'm already at peace with it. It's rainy and terrible here. And I'm just like, you know what? It's over. It's fine. I don't, <laughs> I've got and nothing left the, to do. And you've got an outbreak of pink eye in the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're stuck inside with the kids too. So yeah, it's great. Now, Sean, you warned me next week not to be in touch with you, that you had the sort of Damocles hanging over your head if you had any interactions with the outside world next week. You were being forced to take mandatory holiday time. What's up? Uh, summer vacation starts for us uh, today at you know whatever time. I'd like to say 5 p.m., but it's probably like midnight or something at our household. Uh <laughs> And then I don't know, we have a lot of things. I need to get my driver's license renewed. I need a a booster shot. I'm afraid it's not going to be all that exciting. It's going to be all of the things that have gone neglected for the past uh, several weeks. Nice. Well, I'm off to the Belle Provence for the Labor Day long weekend and then back to school uh, for the kids. And wow, yeah, the fall is upon us. Um, Guys, two stories I want to dig into you with this week. First, um, I don't know. It's not a happy topic, but it's one that needs, I I think, some focus and attention, a kind of a week of um, national conversation, debates, analysis about uh, public kind of expressions of hate. We're, you know, we're seeing this uh, both in terms of uh, a big snafu by officialdom in Ottawa that we'll get into, but also um, another blip or more uh, in terms of the Canadian uh, conservative leadership race and uh, a handshake. Uh, and then the back half of the show, let's talk China because there's some interesting developments uh, going on vis-a-vis Canada's own kind of policies, positioning, its lack of an ambassador. We'll unpack that for you. And then some bonus content at the end of the show, uh, reporter Jeff Russ will uh, have a one-on-one interview with uh, Sabrina Maddow of the National Post uh, on a great story that he has in the hub today on the gender divide in Canadian politics and why this could be a big threat to conservative electoral ambitions uh, in the next election. So an action-packed show. But guys, I want to start with you and let me begin with you, Stuart, because you've been uh, on the Ottawa beat this week. Uh, we have had a more than a tempest in a teapot. I think it's a genuine media SH, I won't fill in the blanks, storm uh, about the Department of Canadian Heritage uh, contract with an outside group that was, of all things, responsible for kind of diversity and inclusivity training that had uh, an employee who was engaged in tweeting about, quote, Jewish white supremacists and uh, other stuff. I'm just not even going to read the tweets. They're so kind of toxic and anti-Semitic. 
Um, where's this going, Stuart, and how big a hit is the government? How do they get out from underneath what's just been a, a storm of condemnation, including from their own backbench? An interesting kind of first time maybe that we're seeing some daylight between the cabinet and liberal backbench members who are outraged at uh, this turn of events. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I think it's worth also noting that we had sort of a similar tempest in the Green Party over these issues uh, last year. Um, and it, it's interesting because we I think you can charitably call this a, a blind spot for progressives, uh, anti-Semitism. And this was something that we saw kick up in the UK too with uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, when he was leader of the Labour Party there. And you know, it, it obviously becomes a big issue because if you have Jewish people in your party, they're they're going to feel a certain way no matter what their ideology is. They're not going to tow a party line that's offensive to them. And I think that's what we're seeing in the Liberal Party right now. And I think also, you know, one part of this story is how slowly the story broke out. Um, it was one of those ones that it didn't erupt. Um, the first place I saw it was from John Kay's Twitter feed, the Quillette editor-in-chief, and he was sort of hammering away at this. And um, you know, you never quite know what's going on in newsrooms in August if people had to be shamed into covering it or if there was just was nobody around in the newsroom to cover it in the way that that sometimes happens. Um, but it took a while and it took a while for the liberals to take it seriously. And uh, that's always a sign that, you know, they don't quite understand how big this could be until it starts to get in the news every morning. So um, it, it's one of those ones that, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to, to see this come out as a scandal for the liberals because it is sort of a classic blind spot. But, you know, I was chatting to a young member of our staff who's Jewish and, you know, he's um, 16 years old. He's surrounded by anti-racism rhetoric all the time. Um, sometimes you feel like maybe it doesn't apply to him. And that's such a weird thing that's going on right now um, is that we constantly hear anti-racism stuff, um, but there is this big sort of missing piece of the puzzle. Sean, what do you think of the kind of government response? Because you know it has been a pretty typical Ottawa response, which is basically, this is the problem of the contractor. We're canceling the contract. They're you know, obviously fired the contract or the entity that was organizing this on behalf of the government of Canada. And again, bizarre that the government is paying for media training for media organizations who I assume if they want to do media training, they could or should pay for it themselves. But look, that's another debate. I guess, Sean, it's, it's a question of we want accountability from government, but like, is the government supposed to go through every contractor's Twitter feeds to figure out if they're in line with whatever, you know, statement or policy on human rights, diversity and inclusion that the government has? I mean, I'm, I'm stuck here as to how, from a policy perspective, because that's what we care about at the Hub, how you fix something like this. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Um... Uh, I, I broadly agree that um, that the expectation that that every, you know the government contracts with dozens, hundreds, thousands, possibly of uh, organizations and individuals, and there are limits on the role, particularly the political arm of the government, to police the views and social media activity of of all of those contractors. Um, although I would just say in parentheses, as I understand it. Um, concerns about this particular individual's views as expressed on social media were flagged with members of the government well before 
this story ultimately broke. So they can't, in this particular case, claim ignorance. But more fundamentally, let's like kind of pull it up a bit. You know, Stuart raised this question of the, the kind of growing place of the anti-racism movement in our institutions, not just government, but education and corporations, et cetera. And, you know, I it just seems to me that there is something of an inevitable consequence when you have people who by, you know, their their very function are are preoccupied with questions of race and particular races and conceiving, you know, conceptualizing our society along these racialized grounds. And I, I think there's something inevitable that you're going to attract uh, people with uh, points of view that, that see, uh, you know, something of a kind of hierarchy of racialized groups, either as victims or oppressors using the kind of language of the anti-racism movement. One of the pieces that I've written at the Hub over the past 15 or 16 months that I'm most proud of um, is one in which I said, I think there's a kind of growing trend in our politics in which a, a, a new fault line is, is less about left and right, liberal, conservative, freedom order, the kind of typical ways in which we think about uh, how, how we frame our politics. And one in which uh, there on one side, those who kind of value human dignity and personal agency, and those who see our society based on a, an immutable set of characteristics, race, gender, uh, sexuality, et cetera. And I hope this whole experience actually, particularly uh, for Ottawa, um, signals the kind of risks associated with going down the route of uh, a kind of a politics that that focuses uh, on race as a way to, to think about how we organize our, our institutions. Um, we got to get back to kind of classic liberalism in which individuals are, are um, measured, you know, based on their character and their, their work, uh, et cetera. Uh, what, what do you think, Rudyard? Well, I, I think hopefully it could be an object lesson for Ottawa to actually do things that are kind of important to the economy, to society, to, to Canada. And of a list of 1,001 priorities facing the government, providing anti-discrimination, anti-racism training to media organizations who are already highly regulated under multiple different federal acts and varieties of regulation. And look, their own social license that they have to maintain to, to operate. Like, why did somebody in government think that the government had to do this? And I, honestly, I'm so cynical now. I, I, I think that this government in particular, they, they love uh, kind of operationalizing in new spending and new programs, you know, the brightest popsicle in the tray. So if there's something that comes up, some issue somewhere, whether it's, you know, a horrible shooting in the United States, uh, you name it, suddenly there's a government announcement, uh, a Twitter post, and a new program. And I think this is a cautionary tale for this kind of reactive, superficial uh, approach to, to policy and more importantly, program development and ultimately public spending, where government's just doing so many things that are outside anything. You know, I think even a generation ago that you know, respected 
Ottawa civil servants, of which there are many, would have said, this is part of the ambit of what government should do today in society. I don't know, Stuart, am I, am I sounding a little too Hayekian, too Straussian in my uh, analysis? Yeah, no, I think you should never underestimate the likelihood of a government doing something easy for what they think is good PR. And this is just sort of empty calories for them, right? Like you go uh, during a federal election campaign and you say, well, we've been funding anti-racism like you wouldn't believe. And like, if you're a journalist during an election campaign, you don't have time to go back and look at what they're talking about. Like the, you've got 30 days of nonstop wall-to-wall coverage. So all of these things are just sort of you know, classically easy things to do um, that you can say you did. And I think you're right, though, when you're frivolous about it or when you're a little glib about it, that's when these things end up in the news. Let's uh, let's move over because we're all about equal opportunity here at the Hubstar, just in the remaining portions of this block. I, I want to get your reactions first, Sean, about uh, the campaign of Pierre Polyev and how they've handled or not um, uh, a controversy of their own, uh, a picture supposedly taken of uh, Pierre Polyev um, uh, shaking the hand of, uh, of a well-known um, white supremacist uh, in, in Canada, someone who really, really toxic beliefs and ideas, Jeremy McKenzie. Um, the media obviously jumping all over this, uh, Polyev, the camp campaign issuing a statement, uh, which I'll read to you now, quote, I denounce racism and anyone who spreads it, I didn't and don't know or recognize this particular individual. Sean, I have my own take on this, but let's hear yours first. Well, there, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this issue. And so the question is, you know, what can I put on the table that may be different or offer some unique insight to listeners. And I think it's actually with regards to the end of that statement, the part that you didn't include, which I think tells us something about uh, Polyev's modus operandi when he becomes uh, leader of the Conservative Party, which we're all anticipating in a few weeks. He turns the criticism of this issue to an attack on the prime minister uh, and, um, and the question of blackface, which of course, listeners will remember was a hot topic in the 2019 election campaign. And I think that's what we're going to see uh, when Pierre Polyev becomes leader, that he doesn't play defense, he only plays offense. And I think that's a, a window into whenever the next federal election campaign is, what it's going to be about. This is going to be an absolute slugfest. Polyev will not be defensive in a way that past conservative leaders have been um, and I think basically what we're going to end up with is the two major leader party leaders beating each other into a pulp and the, the winner will ultimately be the one sort of left standing. Yeah. Listeners may or may not kind of like that. Um, but I do think that that last, why don't you read the, the final sentence, Rudyard, because I really do think that's like a, a such a powerful window into the politics yeah, but of Pierre Paulian. Sean, I mean, let, let me use my time just to be a little more, more critical here. Uh, cause I, I think we are living through a moment of a lot of economic uh, anxiety, uh, social change. Uh, this has destabilized people. It's made people fearful and alienated. And there's a lot, you know, traditionally you look back through history, this is when hate in a variety of different forms towards visible minority groups, uh, anti-Semitism. Historically, this is when you have to be careful when this stuff bubbles up. And I just don't get, see, I, I would see a political opportunity for Pierre Polyev and coming out and denouncing this guy. 
naming him by name and saying, yeah, um, I don't recognize or don't know this particular individual, but, uh, you know, uh, Jeremy McKenzie is a sack of SH and I won't finish it, you know, like that to me is one of the job descriptions of a public figure, especially one who has the ambition to be prime minister of Canada. You have a public role to call out uh, hate. I mean, this is, this is white supremacy, guys. This is the most toxic stuff out there. And if you're not going to do that, I think it speaks to judgment. I think it speaks to some kind of have your cake and eat it to attitude on the part of Pierre Polyev, where, you know, he can kind of walk up to the line with these people. I don't know. He's pissed off at the media. He doesn't like being, I'm sure it's a shitty, it's a, I just used the S word. It's, it's a, it's a crappy job, you know, running for leadership and having the media on your back. And he's probably more motivated by not giving the media you know, what it's kind of orchestrated for him, which is this pylon. But at the same time, come on, man, put on the big boy pants. You have a responsibility as a national leader to call out this kind of toxic stuff. Because if you don't do it now, I don't have a lot of confidence that you're going to do it with the emphatic uh, sense of moral urgency that this moment demands from all of our leaders to call out anti-Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, uh, racism. You know, we can't be complacent about this stuff, Stuart. Yeah, I, just to add on to Sean's point, in six months ago, I probably would have agreed with you, Roger, that Justin Trudeau looked like he was on the road to resigning, but um, maybe stepping down. Having spoken to people who have spoken to Trudeau recently, he's really... He seems to really relish the idea of going after Polyev in a campaign. So I think maybe there's something to that. Um, this, this may be ugly. And to your point, Roger, this does remind me a lot of the Michael Ignatiev leadership, which was that for a different reason, but he was doing the same thing I think Polyev is doing. Ignatiev is an academic who liked the idea of having a good conversation or debate with the person who was talking to him, whether it was a reporter or a pundit or whatever, he would think of that as a conversation he was having in that moment. Not that he was talking to Canadians and trying to win an election um, with sort of broader goals. And I think Polyev and his campaign are looking at this like this guy, this McKenzie guy clearly duped Polyev on purpose for, you know, a claim to put the picture out there to get some attention and uh, it was... use the media effectively <laughs> yes <laughs> to cover that like this guy's winning and winning and that's why i think someone needs to stomp on his head i think that's right i think the the thing that probably annoys the polyev campaign the most is the media's reaction to it because the media i think always gets the directionality of these things wrong which is that they think there is sort of this idea among some media members that the, the trick that Polyev is doing, and this was also during some of the UCP campaign in Alberta, where this similar thing happened, that what they're trying to do is secretly get the votes of people who are sympathetic to these guys by shaking his hand, getting the picture out there, a sort of a wink and a nudge to these kind of voters that they're on uh, their side. Um, but that's insane. That's not logical or rational at all. Uh, what it is, is hundreds of people coming through a handshake line. This guy gets through it and Polyev has to deal with a week of annoying media attention. So I think Polyev's response comes from his 
um, contempt for the media, which has been there for a long time. And I think he sees that they're obviously being duped and they're going after this with a kind of sanctimony that I think annoys him. Um, and I think that makes him respond in a way that's not politically effective. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah let me we'll just come, say- We'll what come it, to Sean, but I'll just say, I agree. Stuart, that is really helpful analysis, but he's not helping himself. This actually was an opportunity for him to lean into something like this in order to reestablish his credentials as a leader with judgment, with moral purpose, with a, you know, the authority that should come with anyone who aspires to the mantleship of prime minister. Sean, you're nodding your head. Yeah, let me say two things. First of all, I, I broadly agree with that. I think, in fact, in last week's episode, I talked about the potential for a sister soldier moment where Polyev criticizes or distances himself from the kind of excesses on the right as a signal to moderate centrist voters that he's someone, even if they don't like his politics or like his policies, that they can kind of see in the top job. And I, I, I hope whether it's on this issue or some other, we see that in the coming uh, months. Uh, I think it will be important if he ultimately wants to become prime minister. The second point I would raise, though, just picking up on something Stuart said, I do think that this is a moment for some introspection on the part of the parliamentary press gallery. You know, it does beg the question, guys, why is it that so many issues or, or, is, uh, or stories that are uh, harmful to the, the government or to progressive politics seem to get broken by international media organizations. We had Time, for instance, break the blackface story in 2019. Uh, in recent weeks and months, uh, we've had other international media organizations uh, reporting on Canadian politics in a way that the, the press gallery has failed to do. And so, um, you know, in this case, we had a lot of oxygen taken up by this handshake, uh, fair enough. Um, but as Stuart says, it was John Jonathan Kay's Twitter account that broke the story about the government, uh, not about uh, an opposition politician running for leadership. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, if the media wants to ensure that there is broad-based trust as an institution, uh, ensuring that it is a kind of equal opportunity uh, uh, scrutinizer of politics on the left and right, I think is, is important. And as you said, Rudyard, something we aim to do at the hub. Yeah, here, here. Well, let's take a quick break back on the other side with uh, a trip to the Middle Kingdom. Uh, does Canada have a map? Can we find Beijing anymore? We're going to find out right after this break. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. I wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to The Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe, and then the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive Per Diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries. But we think you're really gonna enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via Per Diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub podcast. Now back to our program. Welcome back, Hub listeners. Roger Griffiths here, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. 
and Sean Spear, our editor at large. Sean, we spent a lot of time at the Hub um, thinking and writing about China. It's surely one of the big foreign policy challenges that this country faces and encapsulates so many of the issues. Um, yeah, that Canada is going to have to kind of figure out or not um, in in the months and years to come. Um, you got your eye on one kind of interesting error of omission right now in terms of Ottawa and the Trudeau government's policy towards China. What is it? Yeah, it's it's a kind of fascinating issue that's gone underreported, uh, which is ever since Dominic Barton left his post as Canada's ambassador to China after, you know, I think to his credit, helping to uh, extract the two Michaels from uh, Chinese custody, we haven't had a, a permanent ambassador uh, to what amounts to our second largest trading partner and increasingly a major global superpower. Uh, if we didn't have an ambassador for Washington in Washington in eight months, it would be generating a lot of question and attention. And um, and so it, I think it does reflect, as you say, Rudyard, a, a kind of ongoing sense in official Ottawa that we're not quite sure what our interests are vis-a-vis -vis China, how we ought to engage China, and how it fits in a broader foreign policy for Canada rooted in our national interests. I'll, I'll stop rambling in one second, but let me just say um, in parentheses, for listeners who are interested in these questions, um, early next week, we'll release a, a new episode of Hub Dialogues with Fred Bergsten, who's uh, the founding director of the Peterson Institute for Inter International Economics in, in Washington. And he makes the case that a lot of the saber rattling that we're seeing on China, particularly in conservative circles, uh, fails to deal with kind of fundamental questions about how we're going to um, live in an increasingly um, um, bipolar world in which global cooperation on economics and climate change and pandemics is going to be fundamental. So it's a, it's a bit of a different perspective, but I think one that um, listeners will benefit from. And frankly, it seems to me that uh, folks in Ottawa would as well. Now, Stuart, there is a, uh, uh, I guess, an outside panel that's been impaneled uh, by the Trudeau government to provide a kind of foreign policy review uh, of Canada's uh, relative positioning um, in Asia. Some, some debate over whether the document will even mention China. I mean, that was reported on by the Global Mail a couple of weeks ago. I mean, hopefully we're going to see a bit more clarity and uh you know, intent from this this group a little more courage. I think you got an Asia policy that doesn't mention China would be kind of um, bizarre. But what's your sense, Stuart, about the relative, I don't know, visibility of this issue at this point? I mean, it seems like we're just a country embroiled in, you know, domestic politics right now. I mean, what is the What's the impetus really to do anything about this? Maybe that's why we don't have an ambassador because you know all politics is is local, all politics is domestic. Um, you know we care about China, a bunch of other pointy heads and university departments do, but this is this is of a thousand and one priorities. This is a thousand and two. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think if you if you're content with the fact that the media's busy surveying the Pierre Polyev handshake lines, and this is number 10 on the priority list, it's just not going to get talked about. And there's a real kind of faulty towers aspect to this. Just don't mention China and everything will be okay. Um, but I think part of it also is that when you appoint an ambassador, 
everyone starts to look at that person and then draw conclusions about your demeanor towards that country. Like, what are you trying to get from that country? What are you trying to do there? Um, so if you point a really hard nosed person or someone who's been uh, historically a critic of that country, then that tells you something about what they're trying to do. Um, and maybe there's kind of a sign here that the government doesn't actually know what it thinks about China and doesn't know where it wants to go. And I think the debate among that panel probably is reflective of a debate among cabinet or even the PMO itself about where they want to go with this. Um, one thing I will mention from a story I wrote this week from our polling with Leger, um, we were ranking issues about what people care about. And I have always sort of taken as a matter of faith that people don't really care about foreign policy. Um, trade sometimes when it affects them, things like NAFTA do resonate. Um, but right now the war in Ukraine is the number two issue with everyone. And I think that is worth noting because it has been a while since it's been really hot in the news. Um, it's still up there. And I think people are kind of looking out a little more than they normally do just because Russia is forcing us to. Let me just um, uh, take that up. Uh, in the last segment, I mostly took a pass on criticizing the Polyev campaign on this issue of the handshake line at his events. Um, but here, here's an area where I do think um, not just his campaign, but the entire conservative party leadership deserves some criticism. Uh, our first and second largest trading partners are increasingly in the midst of a geopolitical and technological rivalry. Uh, I don't know if there'll be a more fundamental question on the desk of the next prime minister. How do we navigate this world and how do we ensure that Canadian economic and strategic interests are protected and advanced. And there has been absolute silence on these questions. Um, you know, the Polyev message of gatekeepers and freedom, you know, will no doubt appeal to some conservatives, but it's not a roadmap for um, advancing Canadian interests in an increasingly fraught world. And so if I was advising the Polyev campaign, one of the first things that I'd be doing after this leadership race is, uh, you know, some something, whether it's a series of speeches or, or some other means by which he can start to articulate how he would think about Canada's place in the world should he ultimately become prime minister. It may not move uh, ballots, as you say, Stuart, but I think it, it, it speaks fundamentally to uh, why you want to be PM and what you will do as prime minister. Yeah, great point, Sean. I mean, just uh, alert listeners to the fact that there are um, there are rumors, um, not reports yet, but rumors that a, a Canadian frigate will be joining a U.S. Uh, flotilla to transit the states of the Straits of Taiwan in the coming um, month or two. This will be, a, you know, an American kind of uh, assertion of uh, American support for the independence of Taiwan. Um, hopefully, in the next week, we will have a a dialogue for you, a conversation that I had with an individual, Victor Gao, a senior member of the Chinese Communist Party, former translator to Deng Xiaoping, who um, relayed to me, you know, a, a, I think a red line maybe that's not that well understood in the West yet, which is that after the Nancy Pelosi visit, China now feels that its, um, its territorial uh, waters and interests extend across the the median line of the strait. In fact, they extend to the far outer shores uh, opposite um, China of Taiwan. And should the United States and joined by a Canadian frigate 
you know, transit through these Chinese waters, territorial waters, as they're now being asserted by China, again, <laughs> vehemently denied by Japan, Taiwan, and other Asian powers, that, that there is a potential for conflict here should the PLA have, you know, live fire exercises uh, in that zone. I, I'm predicting a game of brinksmanship in the lead up to uh, Supreme Leader uh, Xi's coronation uh, later in November between the United States and China over this uh, transiting of the states. And boy, Stuart, you know, it looks like Canada's going to be in the middle of it. No ambassador, no clear policy with regards to China. Uh, I'm just amazed that we're kind of driving, creening down the highway with the, the headlights off. Yeah, actually, I was reading, we had a good piece from Patrick Luciani, a book review about the fall of the Soviet Union. And I, it made it did make me think that, you know, when it comes to foreign policy, you're always working with imperfect information, because, you know, people like to project power when they don't have power, and uh, sometimes vice versa. And, you know, it's so hard to know with China, if we are looking at a power that's projecting power in a way that's false compared to what they truly have and maybe projecting ambitions more than what they truly have or you know i'm still hurting from my total mis miscalculation about russia and vladimir putin um where i underestimated his malevolence and you know it's reminiscent of hitler in the you know 1930s where most of the west underestimated his malevolence um so um this is the kind of thing that just makes you nervous and the the overarching opinion I have of this government's attitude towards China is one of unseriousness. It just doesn't seem to know what it thinks, and it doesn't seem to have a good process in place to figure out what it thinks. Maybe I'll just wrap up, guys, by saying, you know, I think that unseriousness really cuts across party lines at a time uh, when unipolarity is coming to an end and we're, we're facing uh, a kind of increasingly complex world. Uh, we have a lot of federal politicians who seem more interested in provincial or local jurisdiction, or as Rudyard said earlier, the 101st most important issue facing the country. One hopes that, uh, that they rise to the challenge of Section 91 of the Canadian Constitution and exercising national power and Canada's national interests, because as Rudyard says, um, we're about to enter a kind of increasingly choppy, the increasingly choppy waters of a U.S.-China rivalry that will bring us back to something approximating the Cold War, even if people um, don't necessarily like that analogy. So it's time to get serious. Uh, I agree with that as a kind of overarching message um, and something we try to convey at the hub almost on a, a daily basis. Yeah, Cold War with a potential Cuban missile crisis and just event smack dab in the middle of it. Guys, uh, we're going to wrap here, but I'm excited to um, uh, tee up now for listeners a terrific interview by our uh, Vancouver, BC-based uh, correspondent, Jeff Russ, who, uh, as we mentioned off the top of the show, did a terrific essay for The Hub this uh, day, Friday, the 26th of August, um, reporting out on the growing gender divide and gap in uh Canadian politics and how this could be a, a big challenge, a big issue for whoever becomes a conservative leader later in September. Next voices you'll hear will are Jeff Russ, um, Hub uh, 
hub analyst and writer in conversation with Sabrina Maddow, a columnist with the National Post. Uh, hope you enjoy their conversation. We look forward to hosting you back here on the Hub Roundtable on September the 2nd. Yes, September the 2nd. Uh, Hub listeners, enjoy the last dog days of August. Thanks again for tuning in. This is Jeff Russ, Hub Reporting Fellow. I'm here with Sabrina Maddo. If you are listening to this, you have almost certainly read her excellent columns in National Post and elsewhere. Sabrina, welcome to the Hub Roundtable. Thanks for having me. So the Hub's article that came out today that you contributed to, thank you, goes into why the Conservative Party has been unable to close the gender gap on voting day with women who have trended towards the Liberal Party for the last decade. So what are your immediate thoughts on that? My immediate thoughts is this starts in the U.S. And in the U.S., of course, the Republican Party has made it essentially their chief mission for the last decade and more to um, overturn Roe v. Wade and ban abortion. And in that regard, that's alienated a lot of women from the party. Uh, both, I think it's pushed young women in particular to become more self-described progressives um, and they become stronger in those views. And the party's also shed support from Republican women. I was actually just looking at some polling ahead of the midterms coming up in the States and they're seeing that a larger than expected amount of Republican female voters might just sit this one out because of the Supreme Court decision that just came down. And of course, we have a spillover effect in Canada. Um, we get a lot of our media from the states. We tend to think our politics are more similar to the US than they actually are. And Canadian women see what's happening down there and they have similar fears up here. And the Conservative Party often gets painted with the same brush as the Republicans in the states. Yeah, that's true. In 2019, Andrew Scheer, it was no secret he was a social conservative. Aaron O'Toole was not. So do you think they have insufficiently separated themselves from the party? And if so, how have they not managed to do that? They definitely haven't done a good enough job separating themselves. Um, like you said, Andrew Scheer was a social conservative. Um, and after that, we had Aaron O'Toole, who Canadians didn't get a great chance to know him. He was a leader for a short time during a pandemic, and he just didn't seem to be able to overcome uh, fears that perhaps he was a closeted social conservative. At the same time, the Liberals and Justin Trudeau in particular have been very, very good at using the abortion fear as a, as a wedge issue. And you mentioned that wedge issue. I was told by someone else who contributed to the article that women are still taken for granted by all the major parties, including the liberals. You have said it's a demographic that can be won over. The other person who contributed said it, it would require an investment on the scale of Doug Ford's outreach to organize labor in the last Ontario election. And I found that to be a very interesting comparison. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree with that, that there hasn't really been a concerted effort to win over female voters to the Conservative Party. And I do think they're taken for granted as well on the Liberal and NDP sides. Um, and if the Conservatives do want to win over more female voters, it, it would have to be a years long effort with funding, with organized grassroots outreach as well. And they would have to come up with answers to important issues to women like childcare. And the data is there to suggest that this gender gap has persisted since 2011 when Harper was booted out of power. So why do you think it hasn't gone up to the highest ranks of the conservative leadership? 
that they need to hammer home this issue. Because if you look at the stats, if the conservatives get, or I should say, if there is a larger gender gap with the liberals among women of more than 6%, they do not win elections. So why do you think it hasn't gotten to their heads yet? I think that, you know, politics are always slow to change and especially the political elite are slow to steer big ships in other directions, um, similar to how it's taken them a long time to come around to reaching out to younger demographics, um, to labor, like working class laborers. We're just starting to see them really invest in those demographics. And I think with women, um, you know, there's a lack of female leadership at the highest levels of the Conservative Party. Um, if you even look at like female Conservative politicians who I would say are household names, you can count them on one hand. Um, and that's part of the problem as well. Uh, there needs to be more female voices pushing for this. And I think also the issues that women poll for caring about, um, like I mentioned, child care is a big one, um, whether it's access to reproductive health care, um, climate is also really important to women. Those are also issues that conservatives have struggled to provide their own bold solutions for, or they would sometimes just prefer not to talk about them at all. What do you think is the most frustrating aspect of how women's issues are addressed? Or if I could rephrase, in what ways do you think it's frustrating for women when they see how political parties cover women's issues? Do you think it's too simplistic? Do you think the narrative is far outdated even on the liberal and NDP side? Yeah, I do. I do think it's too simplistic. And I do think it's frustrating for a lot of women to see in particular the abortion issue be used as a wedge uh, as a wedge and always come up every single election um, that should be put to bed. There are more important issues. I shouldn't say important, but there's more pressing issues in Canada at the moment that affect women in their everyday lives that should be dealt with. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of disillusionment certainly on the left as well, uh, particularly with Trudeau who women did heavily vote for in prior elections, but he just hasn't followed through on a lot of his promises. So I guess now, since we're talking about the Conservative Party, we're sort of coming to the bespectacled elephant in the room, which is Pierre Polyev. It's almost certain he'll win leadership. There is certainly, from what I've observed, a very almost generational spirit. You look at his campaign staff, you look at his boosters on social media, it's all very young. So would you say he can bring generational change? I think so. Um we've seen in polling that young, young voters and millennials and Gen Z are starting to shift to the Conservative Party or consider a shift to the Conservative Party. And before the last year, that was seen as something that could never happen. It was impossible. Often politicians didn't even, on the left, sorry, on the right, didn't even bother uh, reaching out to young people. And Pierre is showing that that's possible. Um, and if it's possible with young people, it's certainly possible with women and young females. Um, so we'll see if he's able to bring over those voters as well. I do think that his campaign so far probably appeals more to young men, and we're seeing that in the polling as well. So it'll be interesting to see if he can uh, widen the net to speak effectively to young women. I was just going to mention there, there is almost a sort of quote-unquote broservative spirit in his campaign, if that makes sense. Yeah, I have not heard that term before, but I like it, and I think it does describe the campaign well. But do you think he'll still have the same problem as Sheeran O'Toole? Even because if you look at Polyev's record, he is what you would call a sort of moderate social progressive. 
um, he's on the progressive side when it comes to reproductive rights, when it comes to gay marriage. But it seems to be just easier to, to betray him as a kind of social conservative. So that leads me to think that he's going to run into some of the same types of problems. I'm sure that the liberals and the NDP will try to make the same sorts of accusations, even though he, uh, Pierre has a history of being more socially progressive than some others in the Conservative Party. And I'm sure his campaign has answers for those. Um, you know, the thing about Pierre is he's a fighter. He's scrappy. He'll he'll turn any sort of accusation right around on those who make it. So I could see him taking a more aggressive approach uh, to some of these issues than perhaps pre previous campaigns. Suppose my last question would be, do you think the Conservative Party of Canada can ever divorce itself from the Republicans or divorce itself from that association that is often made between them? I think they can. Um, they have to be much more vocal about it and much more intentional about it. Um, and it would have to be a unified effort to do that. Um, because, you know, whenever you have these fringes off to the side, those are the ones that it's just the nature of the beast. They're going to get the media attention. Everyone starts to get painted with the same brush. So it would have to be a unified vocal effort. And I, I think that that's the route they should be going on. Um, when we look south, the GOP is becoming more and more radicalized, um, more and more fringe. And if our conservatives uh, get painted with that same brush, uh, that's going to that's gonna be a problem for them, not just for women, I think with uh, the Canadian general public. If I may tack on one more, in the United States, you are seeing a clear cultural consequence to the polarization between men and women there. But is it as dramatic in Canada? I think we touched on this in the questions I sent you, but it doesn't seem to be as big of a cultural problem yet. Would you agree? I agree. I don't think it's as dramatic here. The US is much more polarized, whether it's men or women or just the left and right, um, and much more aggressive and angry in its politics. And hopefully we don't continue to see that travel up here. And I think, again, the um, abortion issue has just been very, very divisive in the States. And understandably, women have very strong feelings about that. Uh, and thankfully, that hasn't come under threat up here. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why the difference hasn't been as pronounced. Are you hopeful or optimistic for that continuing? For, sorry, what specifically continuing? For the lack of uh, polarization in Canada thus far. I'm hopeful. I like to say I'm hopeful, um, but we are seeing more and more of it. And I, I do think it's on politicians from all parties to address this um, and not just talk about being unified or coming together, but to actually fix the, the cracks in society, whether those are economic or social, um, you know, gaps in wealth and education. Um, and every party might have a different answer for how they want to go about that, but those things need to be solved in order to avoid that sort of polarization up here. Well, thank you very much, Sabrina, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable podcast at The Hub. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, your executive director. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, the editor-at-large at The Hub, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Aidan Moskovich, intern at The Hub. You can access a YouTube version of this audio on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get it on our website, www.thehub.ca. 
look for the Friday Roundtable. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations for you, featuring some of the world's sharpest minds, brightest thinkers, the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's the Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite audio program. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. We'll do it all again next week.